Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of East Coast, a true crime podcast where I tell you about unsolved cases from Florida to Maine and throw in a few solved cases in between. I'm your host, Allie, and today I'm going to be covering a case that's a little bit different. I'm not sure it totally falls under true crime because there isn't evidence of a crime really being committed, but also I wanted to show the positive side of the internet and it has all the components of true crime, the mystery, the search for answers, that kind of thing. But whether or not there is actually a crime committed, we're not too sure. But anyway, um, I feel like so often that the internet is used for nefarious things that it's kind of interesting to see how it was used in this case. Um, As I go forward, I do want to say that I tried to find the quietest place possible to do this uh, recording. However, it's a bit loud outside, so I apologize in advance if you hear some cars. Um, I first read about the story I'm going to tell you in mid-November 2020. It was right around the time of the election, and I came across it in this Wired article. It was called A Nameless Hiker and the Case That Internet Can't Crack. It was about a hiker who went by the name Mostly Harmless, who was found dead in his tent in July of 2018. This is the story of how he got his name back. Something about that story struck a chord in me. I live relatively close to a branch of the Appalachian Trail, and I've hiked a few different sections of it. I've seen people make the, making their way through the whole of the Appalachian Trail, pushing themselves to points that I honestly don't know I could do. One of my favorite nonfiction books is North by Scott Jarek, which details his attempt to break the speed record for the Appalachian Trail. And I really thought of that book when I first heard of Mostly Harmless. I thought of the struggles that Scott had gone through and just how mentally difficult it was to hike. And Mostly Harmless was relatively new to the hiking world. The first paragraph of the Wired article I mentioned before really highlights Mostly Harmless's story. Quote, in April 2017, a man started hiking in a state park just north of New York City. He wanted to get away, maybe from something, maybe from everything. He didn't bring a phone. He didn't bring a credit card. He didn't even really bring a name or at least he didn't tell anyone he met what it was, end quote. Before we go any further into who Mostly Harmless was, I think it's best to begin where the whole thing started. When two hikers found his body in his yellow two-person tent in Nobles Camp, Florida. Investigators cataloged his belongings. According to the Adventure Journal, quote, they included a beige shirt gray shorts, underwear, Salomon hiking boots, flip-flops, a tent, and sleeping bag, hiking poles, some food, a pack, and a baseball hat. There were two notebooks full of computer code and almost $4,000 in cash in a plastic baggie. What they didn't find were a wallet, driver's license, credit cards, cell phone, or ID of any kind. End quote. Mostly Harmless was five foot eight 
and 83 pounds. Yes, 83 pounds. He was listed as being markedly cachectic. Essentially, he had wasted away. He had no tattoos, no distinctive scars. He had one scar on his abdomen and no distinctive markings. There was no dental work that was considered distinctive. His fingerprints weren't in any databases, and the police couldn't really narrow down his age. He was somewhere between 30 and 50. The police had no idea who he was. That is, until they posted a sketch of him on Facebook. Soon people became, began coming forward, but they didn't call him by any legal name. They called him by his trail name. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Appalachian Trail or through hiking or any of that, trail names are really common out when hiking. Trail names started out on the Appalachian Trail basically because too many people were hiking it. So think of the most common names that you know. Or even think of your elementary school class. There's definitely repetitive names, at least in my, I mean, there are repetitive alleys in band um, when I was in band. So like, there's definitely multiple names and repetitive names out there. And that includes last initials. So people began to create nicknames for On the Trail and different people came to their nicknames in different ways. Some people's nicknames are about where they come from Others are incidents or have been given to them by others. And some people choose their nicknames themselves. Nicknames aren't required for hikers, but they are something that really helps to build the community around through hikers and hikers in general. The mystery man was first known as Denim because he wore jeans on the trail. He eventually became known as Mostly Harmless after introducing himself that way at a campfire, a lot of people came forward that remembered him. There was a 66-year-old woman who went by the trail name Obsidian who taught Mostly Harmless how to make a fire. She said that he'd claimed he'd wanted to see a bear. <laughs> people knew him. They slept next to him at campsites or ate dinner around a campfire. They'd shared stories and they'd shared trail names but no one knew what his given name was. They'd even took photos of him, which started to circulate. From the Adventure Journal, quote, In some, he stares directly into the camera, smiling slightly. His beard is sometimes closely clipped, more often a ragged patch of salt and pepper weeds. The photos show his gear, too. His clothes and boots his odd habit of keeping the rain cover over his pack at all times. The last known photo of Mostly Harmless was taken on April 15th, 2018, less than 10 miles from the swamp where he wasted away, alone, and where his body was found more than three months later. End quote. So who was this man? No one really knew. Articles began circulating about him, and places like Reddit really took hold of the mystery. 
but nothing came of it. Who was this man who was so well known and even well photographed, but they couldn't find a formal name or next of kin? On that note, we'll be back after a short ad from our sponsor. So I mentioned before this concept of through hiking, and I realize many people don't really understand what that is. A lot of us have gone on like half day or full day hikes. But according to REI, the truest definition of a through hike is, quote, an end-to-end backpacking trip on a long-distance trail like the AT or the PCT, end quote. They also mentioned the Continental Divide Trail, the CTD, CDT, sorry, which runs along the crest of the Rocky Mountains. Technically, it's pretty difficult with a lot of sections that don't exactly have trails, and that one's about 3,100 miles. The PCT, which is the Pacific Crest Trail, is about 2,600 miles, while the Appalachian Trail, or the AT, is more than 2,100 miles. I'd safely say all of those would be a bit of a hike. (laughs) Um... Anyway, sorry about my dad jokes. Through hiking isn't fully about the entire hike, but some people do sections of section hiking or things like that. They don't do the full thing, but purists generally state that a through hike is the full trail. But Mostly Harmless was kind of doing a section hiking. He had started in New York and made his way down the Appalachian Trail, and he was heading towards Key West, Florida. This is a rather long quote from Adventure Journal, but I don't think I could sum up why he became so invested not just to the true crime community and Reddit and even there were Facebook groups that popped up, but to a lot of people who hiked as well. Quote, the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System at the University of North Texas had 13,189 open unidentified remains cases as of spring 2020. About 900 of those are in Florida. Many consist of a single bone or a foot that washed ashore in a shoe. Often, bodies are so badly decomposed that police wouldn't dare release a photo. The program's director, BJ Spammer, told me, in reference to the person who wrote the article for Adventure Journal, it is uncommon to have as many photographs of an unidentified body as there are of mostly harmless. In his case, there's even a video. Today, he's a skeleton stored in a medical examiner's office in Naples, five miles from the Gulf of Mexico, and despite all the pictures and posthumous posthumous fame, he remains unidentified. In the absence of answers, people who have never met Mostly Harmless have made him a proxy, a canvas on which they paint a portrait of the man they want him to be. They see his blue-gray eyes in photos and decide they were kind or lonely 
they see a stranger's face as somehow familiar. They cast him as a wanted fugitive, ex-military, or former cult member, either chronically ill or mentally unstable. Some believe he chose to die this way, along suicide by starvation. End quote. So many places came up with this idealized version of mostly harmless. Who was this man who said he was from New York and worked in the tech industry? This man who started out on a journey with a backpack that so many said was too big and too heavy. The man who wore jeans for the first segment of his journey. The same man who was found dead in his tent in Florida. I'm going to go a bit towards the psychological route here for a brief minute or two, but an article on in Psychology Today talked about this fascination with mystery and the outdoors, which his death and who he was is kind of a big mystery, and with his death coming in the woods... I think this quote, even though it is pretty long, really kind of adds to Mostly Harmless's story and gives us a sense of why this has taken hold in our society. I mean, Wired writes about it. There's Facebook groups dedicated to this man. And I just think it's important to understand the psychology behind things. And so, yeah, this is a quote from Psychology Today that is long, but I think it's necessary for this story and to understand it. They write, quote, research shows that people tend to prefer environments that invoke sensations of mystery. These environments usually display views that look partially obstructed from the outside. Let us think about a woodland setting that particularly hides the brushwood people have to actually walk into the forest to fully visualize the composition and extension of the environment. But why are we attracted by such settings? The psychology of mystery is grounded in the implication, implicit assumption that by assessing a scene that appears indistinct and vague, we will acquire more knowledge. This attracts people's interests and pushes them to explore the scene. From an evolutionary perspective, this feature likely dates back to early humans who, unlike today, were vulnerable creatures confronted with constant dangers. They needed to develop a visual strategy to rapidly identify the environments that were worth exploring. Mysterious settings can be valid candidates as they look challenging, useful, and potentially cozy, at least when we observe them from the outside, end quote. So just think about what we know of Mostly Harmless's story so far. His story is quite literally this quote, in a way, because he lived that mystery. He traveled through those woods, and had those campers not found him, the, as the author of the story wrote, potentially cozy atmosphere they found themselves in, wouldn't have been disruptive, but it was by something that many find equally as fascinating, death. So that being said, let's talk about what happened in the years following the recovery of Mostly Harmless's body. 
mainly nothing. There were a few articles written, Reddit and a few other blog and chat forums picked picked up on it, and it became a kind of underground obsession with, as I mentioned, Facebook uh, groups and things like that. But as far as the actual investigation went, there wasn't much. They couldn't figure out who he was. And people, as I mentioned before, started to come up with ideas about his death. But you see, his death was listed as undetermined. They could not determine how he died. He had just wasted away. And I think we're I think a lot of people are interested in the why it happened. Almost I would say less than the how. We understand the how. He literally wasted away. But why? Why did this happen? I don't know if we'll ever know why. In November, Wire did an article on him. There had been a few articles written earlier on, including the article I've mentioned a few times here from the Adventure Journal. It really brought more notoriety to the case, and eventually some friends in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, managed to come across photos of the case. One of them even called the Collier County Sheriff's Office. She recognized the face and knew about the small scar he had. His handwriting was familiar, and so was the coding style he wrote in the journal he was found with. Things began to fall into place. Mostly Harmless's name was found to be Vance John Rodriguez. They used his DNA to prove it. From the Wired article I've mentioned, quote, we'd all been telling ourselves stories about his life, but the man whose journey had ended in the yellow tent wasn't who anyone thought or hoped. If he had been trying to escape something, it was himself. End quote. The next section is going to deal with mental health and includes mentions of a suicide attempt and also of domestic abuse. So if these things bother you or anything, please skip ahead a few minutes. Mental health is a, few, is a huge factor in Vance John Rodriguez's life, and I couldn't tell his story without including these aspects. Rodriguez was born in February in 1976 near Baton Rouge, Louisiana, with a twin sister and an older brother. There's mentions of his father deeply hurting him, but according to the Wired article, no one spoke who they spoke with really had a clear idea about how that happened. Around the age of 15, Rodriguez attempted to kill himself by firing a gun into his stomach, which is how he received his scar. But as soon as he shot himself, he lay there essentially bleeding out. He found this urge to live, and he flagged down a truck, and he managed to somehow survive. But his parents had him institutionalized after the suicide attempt, which really further divided his family. He was emancipated at age 17, and he didn't have contact with his family. They really didn't have much to say as far as anything for any of the articles out there about his case. He went to the University of Southwestern Louisiana, which is now the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. 
He was a bit of a computer nerd, and according to uh, that was according to a friend and roommate from college. That same roommate said, quote, He would go through huge bouts of depression. He'd go for a year without smiling or being nice to people. He was depressed and moody his whole life. But I needed a roommate, and we got along okay. End quote. According to the roommate, Rodriguez didn't graduate, but he'd learned enough about tech to actually begin a career in tech. According to the friend who had called the police about the mental about the photos of mostly harmless potentially being Rodriguez, her name was Marie. Her the name she went by when telling the police was Marie, but for anonymity reasons, she that's what she wants to be referred to as. So that's what I will refer to as her as in this piece. She said that he had suffered from mental health issues, but actually refused conventional medicine. Quote, he self-medicated with drinking and chocolate, she says. He would go on what Marie and other friends called outages, where he lay immobile for days, refusing food and all human contact. But eventually he would snap out of it. He wore his sadness like an extra layer of skin, Marie recalls. But she adds, I truly dug his imperfectly perfect, solitary, singular self. End quote. More people began to come forward and speak about Rodriguez, uh, with an ex-girlfriend's mother commenting that, quote, This man was so abusive to my daughter, he changed her. End quote. The daughter had said he emotionally and physically abused her for upwards of five years. Eventually, Rodriguez moved to New York City and began dating. Wired refers to this woman as Kay because they wanted their anonymity. Quote, they traveled back and forth to visit each other. As their relationship evolved, they decided to both move to New York City and live together. She was going into fashion and had to be there. He had spent his life in Louisiana and welcomed the change. He had never seen snow before. At first, he was romantic and sweet, but soon he started to clam up and shut her out. If something upset him, he would stop talking to me completely, which can be lonely when you share a 500-square-foot apartment, she says, end quote. Kay mentioned times where he would lock her out of the apartment, even intentionally triggering her PTSD from the 2016 bombing on West 23rd Street in Manhattan. He threatened to dox her if she ever left him. But she eventually left. In 2017, of, in January of 2017, Rodriguez wrote in a Slack channel, I'm mostly harmless, but in parentheses wrote, for now. His last post on Slack was in mid-April. Eight months later, his landlord found unopened food, Rodriguez's passport, credit cards, and wallet. He spent the next 15 months hiking, something that he had really never expressed an interest in, ever. He wasn't an outdoors person, according to his former roommate, and he didn't. it didn't seem like something he would do. Most of his friends would had just assumed he was on an extra-long outage, as they referred to it. They assumed he would show back up eventually. The thing with this case is we don't actually know what happened. We can theorize, just like many people did, 
about Mostly Harmless before his identity was discovered. A lot of people thought he was just a man who wanted to escape the world. And he was that, in a way. But no one expected him to be a man with demons. And in my opinion, uh, and most people's opinion, a really dark past. What contrasts and that contrasts so much to what everyone on the trail saw him as. Like, he, they were comfortable with him. They saw him as this mostly harmless embodiment. And that is kind of the gist of the whole case, in my opinion. People have these external personalities they can portray. And sometimes you never really know everyone. I want to make a few quick announcements before I go. As always, I do the research for these cases all on my own. I do tell this podcast based primarily on, for this case, newspaper articles or journal articles or the Adventure Journal and Wired were my two main sources for this. Three because there were two Wired articles. But they're kind of primary sources in a way um, because they really happen as time progresses in this case. So they're very important to use. And even though there have been other podcasts written and produced, I focus primarily on the primary cases, primary sources, because of how important primary sources are in understanding, especially when the secondary sources don't have much to add to the conversation. And that is where my history majorness is coming out. Anyway, I will try my best to, I tried my best to tell this story as accurately as I could, but there's not a ton of information out there. I just want to say if you happen to know something about this case that I bypassed or didn't mention or that you think is relevant to know, please let me know. If you want to talk to me about this case, also, please reach out. I love to talk. And this has been a case that really has kind of kept with me for a while. Since the first time I read the article in November, I was just like, what in the world is this case? Who is this person? Like, what is going on? And now that it's been solved, I'm still like, who was this person? And why did he decide to go hiking all of a sudden? Like, it's just very interesting, and almost from a psychological psychological perspective, it's very interesting. Anyway, all the sources I use for this story, and if you want to read the articles, I highly recommend them. They do a fantastic job. The writers are great. They're in the show notes, as usual, and the theme song is The Journey Acoustic by JAL2020 on Audio Jungle. Thank you guys so much for listening to my podcast. I learned that we're not all from the United States today who listen. That's amazing and incredible, and that is beyond exciting. Um, And I just want to thank you guys. It's kind of incredible that I have people who every other week now listen to my podcast, and you listen to it regularly. Like, it's, it's just really rewarding for me to know that people are out there listening to my voice. So if you're new, please subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a five-star review. 
if you have a case you want me to cover or just want to say hi, you can email me at eastcoasttruecrime at gmail.com or follow me on Instagram at eastcoasttruecrime. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you all in two weeks. Bye, guys. Mm-hmm.